Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Charles Harriet, a black belt under Professor Hinaldo Santos. Charles is quite the Renaissance man, having a deep background in physics, breakdancing, judo, kempo, and MMA. He's a fantastic instructor and basically lives on the road doing seminars and substitute teaching in academies across the world. I was fortunate to participate in a couple of his Globetrotter classes, and I must say his knowledge of the leg lock game is really something to behold. Charles is incredibly thoughtful and candid. This episode is packed with information, so pay attention because a fire hose of data is coming your way. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just share the podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And leave us feedback and suggestions at anchor.fm forward slash Forever White Belt. Also, like our Facebook page to get all the latest at facebook.com forward slash Forever White Belt. And check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Okay, you guys, the after Christmas sale is on. So go buy your Forever White Belt swag for yourself or for others. We're selling everything at cost at Teespring. That's T-E-E-Spring.com forward slash Forever dash White dash Belt. And I just want to say happy holidays. This is the post-Christmas episode and possibly the New Year's episode. And I just want to say thank you everyone so much for listening. I'm super grateful to all of you and all of the guests that have been on the show. And I look forward to a fantastic 2022 with all of you and to bring you the best that I can do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, all of you, sincerely. And with that, I give you Charles Harriet. Welcome to the show, Charles hey, Harriet. Hey. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Doing great. Let's get into your background. I know that you've done a lot of traditional martial arts as well as judo and coming up. Did you do all this in Florida, correct? I was born and raised in South Florida. And then I went to the University of Florida in Gainesville for university. And then I lived there in Gainesville for the following 15 years plus now that mm-hmm. I've been in Gainesville. Yeah. So it's pretty much been all, all Florida and then a lot of, lot of wanderings on the road, but never really lived anywhere besides Florida. You did all these various martial arts and how did you fall into jujitsu? I think I found the jujitsu pretty similar to most striking martial artists, which is like mm-hmm. MMA is really popular and you get invited to a gym and somebody's like, Hey, do you want to spar? And then you get taken down and you realize that like 10, 15 years of punching and kicking people makes you still completely useless on the ground. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a wake up call, but, uh, for me, I had a little bit before then. So my karate school used to have seminars mm-hmm. from, uh, we had a guy named Trevor Sherman. He was an MMA fighter back in the day. And then we'd have occasionally have a judo guy who'd come in. We did do a seminar and we'd learn, you know, an hour to three hours worth of that stuff. And then in our little bubble, we would practice it. And mm-hmm. so even in my karate school, I thought I was a good grappler, even mm-hmm. though the extent of my grappling skills were I had a headlock that I would just squeeze really hard and people sure. would tap because mm-hmm. that was like the level of my karate school when it came to grappling. Like right. I thought I was the king of grappling. I literally, every match when we were practicing our grappling, would just do a headlock, not let go, and people would give up. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, this that was the extent of my grappling knowledge. And I was like, why do I need to bother? <laughs> I see people doing all these arm bars and all these positions. And it's like, I just headlock people. Why do I need to spend any more time? Like I was very much in my little narrow view. Like I was the best grappler in my karate school mm-hmm. and I had one move and it seemed to be enough. So why spend any more time? had a mm-hmm. rude awakening when my very first day at an MMA gym in Gainesville, they dropped me in the cage of a professional fighter. And I found out very quickly that 
oh, on the feet, like I didn't kickboxing and stuff. Like I was just fine, even though he was a boxer. And so like when it came to the, the punching range, he was definitely better than me. Mm-hmm. But everything was fine. And then like when I got dragged to the ground, I was like, oh, there's more than just a headlock. And apparently this headlock thing, it only works on other people that are as bad as me. And I would go home and I'd have friends and I would be really blunt with them. I'd be like, you guys suck at, at grappling. They're like, Charles, don't be rude. I'm like, no, no. You want to know how I know that you suck at grappling? Because I suck at grappling and mm. I beat you, which means mm. by the transitive property, you also suck. And it's okay because mm. you need to realize that you suck or we're never going to get any better. I am the mm. worst person at my gym in Gainesville. The worst. And I beat you guys. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so what an interesting route, man. So you went through, uh, you came in through MMA then, right? So well, Yeah, well, because like back like 2006, maybe 2007, when I started, because I, when I first went to university, I was actually looking for some martial arts to do. And I never really, I guess I wasn't too thorough in my search in Gainesville because there are some pretty good striking martial arts schools in, in Gainesville, like, not mm-hmm. to take any away from them, but mm-hmm. I didn't find them. And so I just ended up doing breakdancing instead. And mm-hmm. then I, oddly enough, the way that I got back into doing martial arts instead of just dancing was I took a, a, a leisure course in the university for Tai Chi mm-hmm. and other martial artists through my Tai Chi course. I ended up going over the house of the coach of one of the guys from school who was doing his like own mixed martial art. His name was Stephen Levi. And, and we ended up sparring on his back porch by his pool. And like, he was the one who actually got me into doing a little more grappling. And then I ended up just dropping it in A school. But like, there wasn't really anywhere in town that you could just do jujitsu. It wasn't really a choice. It was, you could go and train with these, these mixed martial arts. Like they call it submission grappling back then. It was all nogi and they were all preparing for the MMA bouts. And so they didn't really teach all that much. They just pretty much mm-hmm. wanted bodies to prepare them for their bouts. Mm-hmm. And like you sure. weren't really in a structured class. You think of a traditional jiu-jitsu class or judo class where you have a warm up, there's technique, and then you spar. They were pretty much just doing rounds. It was just, there was a timer and you jumped in there. There were, sometimes there wasn't a timer because the timer was broken and you would just fight for hours. And so you were dead and they could, maybe they were doing just ground or they were doing striking with takedowns or they were doing kickboxing, but there wasn't really all that much a curriculum. It was, everyone was just trying to get themselves to a point where they wouldn't die when they went to the cage. I wasn't really super interested in competing MMA, but my view of my years of martial arts was that like, I was able to defend myself Mm -hmm. and like realizing that like a two-year wrestler could just ruin me after I'd spent 15 years training was like really disconcerting, really bothered me. Yeah, and sure. that was kind of what got me into it. But I never had any intention of like really becoming a grappler at first. I really just wanted to learn enough to stand back up and punch and kick. That was really the goal. Interesting. So coming again, coming from that sort of MMA aspect of it, how did you even fall into the gi at all? Because it seems like you would have just directly went into no gi. Well, it's kind of funny. So I ended up in the gi first and foremost because of judo. So yeah, um, okay. a friend that I met at breakdancing actually was, at first he was just a student, but then he became the coach of the University of Florida Judo Club. His name was uh, Natty Sadler. He had invited me to come to judo class and he, was, mm-hmm. he wasn't at all in MMA. He was very much just into judo and he competed in judo and was like winning state titles and stuff and was super, not traditional, but like very focused on judo, like mm-hmm. nothing else, just judo. And I had my background in striking. And so when we both had been breaking together, and so that was kind of our, our crossover. And then I started training judo with him. And so I, I liked judo a lot because I like competition and like I kind of figured it out to a degree. And also I liked the gi because like I've been doing karate my whole life. And karate, you wear a gi, you have a belt. And like I liked a bit of that. Like in general, like I enjoy the gi. I just don't like that in jiu-jitsu, the gi has more rules than no gi. 
Like if mm-hmm. Gi and Nogi had the same rules, I'd be perfectly fine with it. The only issue is that generally speaking over the years, Nogi rules have been more generous and more open, whereas Gi rules have tended to get more and more restrictive. Interesting. And so, like, I like the freedom. Personally, like, if given a choice between doing judo or doing wrestling, like, I way prefer judo. I like stand-up with a gi better than stand-up without a gi. But on the mm-hmm. ground, this, there's less stalling with no gi. There's like, I, And so, like, and for me, honestly, the biggest thing, and it found, sounds funny, is, like, there's just less laundry. Like, I can pack, like, 10 sets of no gi in the space of three gis. And so, like, mm-hmm. for someone like me who likes travel, like, no gi yeah. is just better. But I got into it from judo, and then from there, we never really had like a big gi program. I think that they added a gi program under um, a guy named Alfredo, who was a, a judoka from from Brazil, who also did jiu-jitsu at my at the MMA gym that I was training at years later. But I never had any sort of ranking or a promotion in gi until years later, when Beto Nunes ended up doing a seminar. He, did, he was a daily heated black belt. He had, did, a, did a seminar in Gainesville, and then kind of became affiliated with a, a school that I was training at. And then later on, he ended up moving to Gainesville. And like, that was the big jump where like, I started doing like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and a Gi taught in the way that like, it's generally thought of today. Whereas mm. previously it was submission grappling. And the goal was just, this is like, like you're a triathlete really. And like, this is just you practicing your swimming, right? Mm. The, the goal isn't to be an Olympic swimmer. The goal is to be a triathlete. And the, mm. But this is a part of your training. It wasn't until Beto came to town that I was like, the, the jitsu started actually becoming more of like my main focus. It was always kind of a sidebar up until that point. And then after that, because I was, I would travel around because Gainesville at that point in time really only had purple belts, like the, the highest belts in town were purple belts. There weren't really black belts in town. And so that led to things being a little, little weird. Occasionally we'd have like a brown belt come visit or like, cause it's a college town. So we have transient people who would come through. But no one who stayed there was super advanced. And so I would go and travel out of town. And that was like a, a, that salty white belt that like Alfredo would give me a few stripes on, but not a blue belt because he had ended up stopping teaching. And the school that I was at ended up closing down because no one wanted to pay math fees. The math fee was $5. Wow. And people were complaining and like, were, and like were sneaking in the side door. <laughs> and obviously, like that led to a point where the gym ended up closing because it was just such a silly thing. It was the only gym in town to do this. And no one wanted to pay. It was just such a sign of the time. This was like the tap out era of UFC. Like, yeah. And everyone, mm-hmm. everyone came in like, no, you don't understand. Like all, all the cliches that you hear today, like, no, my, I see red. I got this mentality built. Like I was my job as the kickboxing coach back then to like calm down the crazies. So, like once a week, I'd have to go in the cage with some guy who said he was going to be the next Chuck Liddell and spar with him and like teach him to calm down. Like mm-hmm. I was the, the striking mat enforcer at that point in time because I was still mm-hmm. just a complete baby in grappling. What a unique sort of entryway. You know, I like to ask, what did your first day of jujitsu look like? But yours seems to be blurred with like this Luta Livre kind of thing. And yeah, it was very much like my first, I can't even know that it was like my first day because like my first time rolling when it was no striking allowed, no MMA allowed. I still remember that one of the professional fighters must have knee barred me like eight times. And like, and because back then there's no clock. I had such a, you can call it like stubbornness. You can call it ego. You can call it stupidity. I never wanted to admit that I was done rolling. And so like my little bit of pride that I would hold on to was like that even if you tap me, God knows how many times that like 
you got tired before I did and wanted to, or got bored of me and wanted to roll with somebody else. Mm. And so like, he tapped me out so many times and then he'd be like, all right, I'm going to roll with somebody else. And that was my little bit of like solace. I didn't quit, even though I was just getting mauled, (laughs) (laughs) mauled by everybody. But because I didn't quit about a month later, a couple of the other students took me aside and were like, Hey, you seem like you're not going to quit. And back then I was on their side. They're like, yeah, everyone just quits. And I completely agree with them. Like, yeah, everybody quits. So why would you teach anybody anything? Not realizing the obvious statement, like the reason people are quitting is because you're not teaching them anything and just beating them up. Mm-hmm. But like, I was fully on board with like the meathead philosophy back then of like, yeah, so you have to earn your training, forgetting that like you're paying to be here. But then again, like half the people were skipping out on dues. So like, were they really paying to be there? So mm-hmm. like, unless you kind of prove that you were actually going to stick to this, people just didn't teach you. Mm-hmm. But I got lucky that people took a liking to me because I was kind of gritty and stubborn and they would pull me aside, be like, okay, here's how you hip escape. And here's how you bridge. And here's how you do this and that. And then later on, I ended up, there was like a private training of a few of these guys that had their own mats that they invited me to. And so one of them was my judo coach, because by this point, he'd started doing some nogi, was like a little starting to get interested in things outside of just judo. Another one was his, uh, one of his judo coaches. So two, and so he was a judo brown belt, other guys a judo black belt. And then a friend of mine who had been doing special grappling at this point in time for like eight years. And then like they, they had their own private training they used to do because they were all friends. They all worked at the same day job together. Instead of having a rest round, they had me. And so I was the rest round. And so like after they beat me up, they would tell me what I was doing wrong. And like this is when I started getting some training along with that guy I told you about earlier who had the MMA system, who was kind of giving me some grappling stuff along the way as well. But I still remember it like, like one of the most pivotal days for me that like in my own like desire and like motivation was, do you remember those old eighties brick phones? Yeah. And so one of the guys, this is my friend's judo coach at the time. So he's a black belt in judo, been doing judo his whole life since he was a kid. And I've been training at this point in time, a few months, the phone rings and he has somebody bring in the phone. He answers a phone call. I'm in bottom scarfold in bottom case of Katami. I'm underneath him, still trying to escape, flailing. And he's taking a full phone call. He took a phone call, solved his phone call and hung up the phone. And in that time, I was not able to escape. It was one of the most humiliating moments of my entire time grappling. It's like, well, this, this is not okay. I, I, I have to get better mm-hmm. at this thing. Like, like, not only am I helpless against this person, like, I'm so helpless and they don't even have to try. And he was slightly bigger than me, but he wasn't massively bigger than me. You know, like, not so much that I could, like, that my ego could let it just be like, oh, he's just a big guy. That was, no, he wasn't enough bigger than me that I could just write that off. And so, like, that, that was a really big motivating point for me. And, like, I ended up, like, I think by the time, unfortunately, for, like, for my ego, or maybe good for my ego, so I didn't, like, just do this for my ego, like, by the time I got good enough where I could beat him, he had got accumulated so many injuries that he couldn't really train properly anymore. Mm-hmm. So, like, I never mm-hmm. got my moment where, like, I caught up to him on skill and could, like, beat him. Sure. He, he ended up becoming a friend yeah. of mine. But, like, he was so injured that it was like, yay, like, I'm at the, like, you fast forward, I'm now, like, 25 years old and, like, peak physical condition. And he's in his, like, late 30s, early 40s, just completely broken. Like, <laughs> there's not really much. <laughs> like, I don't feel good about this. Like, uh, yeah, I can, like, I can beat this, this older injured man. Like I, I didn't, it didn't give me any, um, any, any joy. And not to mention the fact that like, by this time, like I never had that like frustration and anger that I had all those years earlier. I now he's now a friend. And so like, I don't actually, I don't want to see my friend. Hurt. I don't want to, like, yeah. like it's, it's, it's that weird thing. Like in the beginning, like you don't know these people very well and they're just beating the snot out of you and you get, you get your feelings hurt. You want to, you want to make up for it. But by the time I, it's funny, like by the time you have the powers to do so, 
you realize that that's not important. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about breakdancing because I yeah. always find that really fascinating. When I was speaking to uh, Michael Courier on another episode, we spoke about gymnastics and touched on that. And I told him that I was fascinated with breakdancing too. I always think of like Geo and Boogie and 10th Planet yeah. and how, you know, Eddie pointed that out. And I always thought too, knowing the breakdancers that I knew is I'm like, this is like gymnastics. They have such a command of movement in their bodies. Did you see a benefit to it? It seems like it was sort of hand in glove is what I always thought breakdancing and jujitsu in terms of like uh, movement and control of movement and mobility. Massively. Like I would say more so than anything else. So like when I started jujitsu, I had already done judo. I had already done striking martial arts, uh, karate, kickboxing, et cetera. But like the awareness of balance and the comfort and ability to move on the ground. Because if you look at breakdancing footwork or b-boy footwork, whatever you want to call it, depending on how formal you want to be with your language, it's jujitsu. Like I have a class that I made like breaking for jujitsu or like b-boying for jujitsu. And like hmm. half of the motions in it are literally moves that we do in jiu-jitsu. It's not even like just that you're getting the intrinsic value. Like there are literal moves that are the same motion. Mm -hmm. And so like you, you take a regular person and you turn them upside down and they're confused. You take a B-boy mm -hmm. and like, it's just a backstep. We're going to keep moving. Mm -hmm. And not to mention that like, I never really had arm muscles before I was a B-boy. Like I had done karate for so long and I was a kicker. I was built like a frog. I had mm -hmm. massive legs and like little tiny, tiny arms. Like doing footwork and, and breaking is like what gave me arms and shoulders. Like I never really was a big fitness buff. Like I did push-ups and sit-ups, but like my, I gained 10 pounds of pretty much muscle my first year of college because of the hours of having my weight on my arms breakdancing. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, there's the entire nature of both aspects of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and being a B-boy are the same. What are you doing? You learn discrete moves and then you learn transitions to link those moves together. And being able to link those moves together creatively is an attribute. It's the same. Like that, that mental plasticity that you get from always wanting to be unique. Because one of the biggest things and, and like insults that you can be given as a b-boy is to be called a biter, which means someone who's just stealing someone's style or someone's move. And so like your whole idea is that you constantly want to take what you're learning, flip it and make it your own. Well, that's the same as jiu-jitsu. And I think that's part of why I think 10th Planet was such a good fit for Geo and Boogie. Because like they actually were coming up in the scene around the same time I was just, they were from California, but they came to Florida for a few battles. They were uh, a bit more accomplished than I was. Like they were probably, I'd say like national level B-boys. They were really, really mm. good. I was like a regional level. Like I like won a jam or two, but like I was never like a, a big deal. I was in, mm. I was in university. Like my, my priority was graduating university. Sure. Going to be a B-boy was secondary, but like they, they were really good. But like, I think if you look at 10th planet, that's 10th planet style. 10th planet style is, having a unique and different move that your opponent has never seen and using that, that, that skill gap and, and familiarity gap to defeat your opponent. Whereas if you look at some more traditional branches of jiu-jitsu, it's executing this thing that everyone knows in the cleanest, most perfect way. And that's great. But at the same time, like being able to think abstractly and think outside of what the norm is, is, is definitely a very big attribute in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I don't know that every single branch of our art really appreciates it. There's some schools where like, if you're the student and coach says, do A, B, C, D, and you skip a step because you're able to, that coach may have a very good reason that you shouldn't skip a step. But oftentimes that coach is telling you to skip a step because that's how he was taught. Mm -hmm. He's teaching you what he was taught and he loves his coach and loves what he did. And he's had, not just that, he's had, he's had success with what he did and he wants you to replicate that. Yeah, I think that we're point. in a really 
good place right now in that a lot of people are starting to step outside of that, just teaching what they were taught mentality and really asking, well, why do we do these things? Mm-hmm. And if I understand why I was taught X, Y, and Z, well, maybe I can improve upon it, right? Because mm-hmm. like, I think that there's an unfortunate thing that some people think that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or whatever martial art they do, like, has been passed down from some sacred stone tablets from God and is completely immutable and mm-hmm. it will leave you in the past. I really think that you have to evolve. And that's part of what I think like being a B-boy, like it's all about because there's nobody who's a good dancer who does exactly what they were taught. You have to add and you have to create and you have to make it more than what you were taught and put your own personal spin on it. And I think the same is for jujitsu. Like I don't want any of my students to be clones of me. That would be horribly depressing. That would mean that I failed them. I want them to surpass me. I want them to go beyond what I've done. And how in the world can they go beyond that then when all they can do is be robots and do exactly what I say? On that topic, can you kind of explain what is the B-Boy Pass? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So like, I just call it that because it's, it's fun. But um, so I, I think, I think Jiu-Jitsu has another name. I just, I have a bad habit of forgetting things' names. And if the name wasn't memorable to me, I think it's not memorable for my students. And so I just make up a name and put it on it. <laughs> so all it really is, is it's kind of like a swipe. So in, in, in breakdancing or b-boying or capoeira, because I've done a little bit of capoeira, but mm-hmm. the main way that I got capoeira was because we had to compete against them in local talent shows. Like there were capoeiristas who would beat us at local talent shows. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. I'm going to steal some of their stuff and yeah. maybe I can win. But um, <laughs> um, the idea is that you, you kind of elevate your partner's hips, you bring your hips forward and you throw your leg across. And the move is called a swipe. And the whole idea is that you bring the hips forward and then you throw your leg across and you put your weight back on your arms. And in jiu-jitsu, you can lean up forward and land on the person. When you're dancing, there's no other person there because you're not allowed to touch each other. And so you would spin 360 degrees around and land on the, on the same leg. All right? So I just called it that because it reminded me of doing a swipe. Because there's lots of motions in jiu-jitsu that remind me of b one moves. So, like, for example, mm-hmm. when you exit an omoplata, if you stay laying on your back, the person's just going to roll out of your omoplata and get up and face you. But... Like if you think, think of the old plot of sweep, right? If I lay down, I stay in my butt. How many times do you try to do that? And your partner, they do a roll, they turn around and face you and you've completely wasted your time. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a type of windmill in b-boying that's called the Superman, where instead of windmilling on from a, a freeze, you windmill on your, your arms out like you're a Superman. If you do that exact same motion off your own plata, they cannot get up and roll. You land in mm-hmm. side control and they're stuck because you're mm-hmm. matching your elbow to their elbow. Not to mention that if you look at the, the motion of six step, the most fundamental basic footwork in b-boying, like there's a sit out there. There's a triangle there. There are hip mm-hmm. switches there. There's all of these weight shifts and coordination that we use in Brazilian jiu-jitsu that are incredibly just, just there in b-boying. Like there's just nothing that I've done in my life that made jiu-jitsu easier than, than being a b-boy. Like when I first started, even though like I was getting mauled by like really good people in the beginning, like people had a really hard time sweeping me just because my balance was there and I was very comfortable being thrown around. Like, mm-hmm. and so like, and that's part of what I loved about it. I loved that Like I knew that I was like more coordinated and agile than a lot of people that I met when I first started, but they were still able to beat me because like, it's just like when you see have, like a wrestler come into the jiu-jitsu room, like he's going to maul some of your white belts. But like, there's a certain, there's a lot of mistakes that a wrestler is going to make, like getting guillotined a bunch, like a classic one, like, because they don't know the thing. That's the same thing that happened to me. Like I would do things that other people couldn't do, but usually they were energy intensive and like not necessarily the best idea. 
But over the years, I've figured out ways to be efficient and add those things. So the B-Boy Pass, I hopefully that explained it pretty well. There's a, there's a video of it on YouTube that you can see. Yeah, we'll, we'll add the link to that. Yeah, <laughs> just, well, I've, yeah. Because like, I wish it. I could do a better job of explaining, but it's based upon a swipe is the whole idea. It's based upon a, a B-Boy move called a swipe. One of the things also with breakdancing too, as I've noticed, is just the hip mobility. You're able to swivel and, and move your legs and your torso versus your legs in different directions with a lot more fluidity, it seems like. Interesting thing about me is that like, I'm a bit of a weirdo. So like you see Geo and Boogie, they're like yogis, right? They're made of rubber. I am the complete opposite. My hips are recent. They're getting better now, but like for the majority of my career, I've been just complete garbage. I've had tight hips my whole life because I did karate. And in karate, one of the things they made us do was stand on one leg and throw sidekicks forever. And so that developed the outside of my legs to the point where like I can flare my heel out really easily, but mm -hmm. opening my hips like you do in a cross-legged position or a lotus is really hard for me. So in order to compensate for that, I have to rely upon my dexterity and my coordination to move my entire body because I personally just am not able. And the funny thing, mm. whenever I tell people this, they're, they're shocked because when I'm rolling, yeah, I, can, I, can, I can get to all these positions. But that also just shows in the same way that like jitsu is not a monolith, mm. b-boying or breakdancing is not a monolith, right? So you think about jitsu. Well, if you look at like Muhammad Ali and then you look at Mikey Musumeci, those are two very different styles of jiu-jitsu. So then if you add a third person, like, like say like a Dean Lister, or, or like even a, a geo, like four guys, four different sizes, very different jujitsu. Mm -hmm. And so like, I never had the hyper flexibility style of b-boy. I had a background mm -hmm. in karate and tricking. So I did some flips, I did blow ups, I did freezes, but I, I wasn't a powerhead. Like Boogie did air flares. Air flares are incredibly hard. I have garbage shoulders. I can't do air flares, mm -hmm. but the thing about being a b-boy that makes it good for jiu-jitsu isn't just the individual moves. It's, it's really the mindset and the creativity. So yeah. like, I don't have flexible hips at all, but I learned that you have to make it your way. So that's the cool thing about breaking is that like, if you can't do a move, there's no one to tell you that you're doing it wrong. That was what I absolutely loved about it. Because what I hated about dance before that was it's choreography. If you look at a hip hop dance show, it's complete choreography. Everyone's doing the same thing. And I'm stubborn. I'm like, I don't want to dance like you. I want to dance mm -hmm. like me. Mm -hmm. And so as long as the, the general rule that I was always taught when I was coming up was like, there is no wrong. As long as you're on beat, as long as you're dancing and you hit the beat, there is no wrong. It's my dance. You can dance your dance. I'm going to dance my dance. And I, I took that same mentality with me to jiu-jitsu. Like, as long as it, for jiu-jitsu, like, as long as it works, and as long as it's efficient, it's my jiu-jitsu. It's like, I don't have to do the knee slide pass exactly like you do. Is it effective? Am I controlling your hips? Am I being efficient with my energy? To me, if it, if it crosses those three things, then it's jujitsu, mm -hmm. right? If, if I, it, I don't have to do a jujitsu that everybody else can do, as long as to me, those are the three main things. Does it work? Is it efficient? And like, can you modulate the danger? I guess that's the best way of putting it. Like, cause that's one of the things that got me into jujitsu in the long run was in striking arts, if I almost punch you, and I pull my punch. I have to rely upon you understanding that I could have punched you. And if you don't understand, I have to punch you and I have to hurt you because otherwise you're just going to, you're just going to ignore the fact that I'm pulling my punches and beat me up. But in jujitsu, I can control you in a way where I'm not breaking you. And then I can put you at the pinnacle of breaking under control and convince you to chill out. Or if you don't want to chill out after that, I can choke you and you will go unconscious and then you will wake up and you'll be groggy, 
but you're not going to be broken. You don't need to go to the hospital. You're not going to die. And I haven't like broken our entire relationship. Right. I always think of the example of like you having like an uncle or a family member at a party who's had a little bit too much to drink. Right. Do you want to like piece them up with like, like Jorge Masvidal style, two piece in a soda? Do you want to do mm-hmm. that? And that your <laughs> uncle's not going to appreciate that. But if you just give him a hug and you calm him down, like he's still going to be embarrassed that like he made a fool of himself at the party, but he's not going to have a broken nose or broken ribs or whatever else. It's like, to me, that's like the ethos of Brazilian jiu-jitsu or jiu-jitsu or grappling that, that I loved was that like, if there was a problem, I didn't have to hurt my friend who was being an idiot. I could calm them down or, and, and they don't have to be injured. And so like, I, I love that. So like, cause historically all I had was I can kick really hard. I can punch really hard and I can move my body in a way that you can't hurt me, but I kind of have to hurt you. If you, if you try to hurt me, I kind of have to hurt you. And with jujitsu, I don't have to hurt you. I kind of choose to, unless you are superlatively huge, right? Like if you're a professional football player, sized human, and you're an elite level athlete, well, I might not have enough skill to be able to, and you're trying to punch me or kick me. Like I might not have enough skill to be able to like control you without having to do a little bit of damage. But if you're my size, I should be able to diffuse a situation without maiming you. And that's jujitsu for me. Like that's, that, that's the key thing that separated this style of martial arts to me from everything else I'd ever done. And not everyone really agrees with that ethos. Some people think jujitsu is just fighting and like you should snap everyone's arm and rolling. I just, I don't think that that's, that's the way, you know, like if, if you break all your training partners, you don't have training partners. Let's talk about teaching. I look for really wonderful teachers and I pride myself on getting some really wonderful teachers on the show and uh, identified you as being one of these people having watched several of your videos and a lot of the, well, what was provided by Globetrotters as well. It's a really interesting sort of take on, on teaching. How did you learn to teach and how do you keep that sword sharp as well? As far as the second question, how do I keep it sharp is I'm mildly obsessive. So like I never, I guess like the cycle of, of like thinking that I'm pretty good at something, like meeting someone who I think is better or like reading something I never thought of and then immediately getting imposter syndrome and like obsessing about getting better. And then the cycle begins again mm-hmm. as like, pretty much been unending since I first started teaching. So I, I first started teaching martial arts when I was 13 wow. in our uh, American Kempo school. I was one of the senior students and they had this program that I think a lot of the, like uh, sport karate or you call them strip mall karate schools have, it's called the SWAT team. And so like, it's just, they, they give the kid a different uniform. You feel good. I got a special uniform and you get to help out with classes. But I was just, I guess, mature enough to run a class and the classes were very formulaic. You had a 15 minute warm up. You had 15 minutes of technique, basics, punches, kicks, etc. And then you had 15 minutes of, of forms. And then you had like a little bit of a performance in the class. And then a, twice a week, you'd have a sparring class. It'd be the same thing. But instead of performance practice, you would get to spar each other. And so I, I learned at a very young age, just these little ways of conveying information. But I was always a kid teaching kids. And so I realized very quickly, I could relate to other children better than the adult instructors could. Because I could speak, whether it be speaking in slang, using metaphor, and like it wasn't something that was really taught to me in that front. It was just when you're a kid and you're getting experience, mind you, at this point in time, like we weren't paid. We were paid in trinkets, right? So like every 10 class I did, I got a little little star patch to put on my leg of my pants. And I, I felt good about that. I helped with 100 classes and I got a little duffel bag. And like when you're so young, like this is awesome. Check out yeah, my bag. Like not realizing that like this is 
effectively child labor and kind of fucked up. But <laughs> but but when I was a kid, I loved it. <laughs> so then later on, when I was in high school, I, I started getting paid, and I was paid nothing. I was paid eight dollars fifty cents an hour for effectively like running a martial arts school that was making like a massive amount of money a month. Like it's only as an adult I look back and I'm like, I was definitely like being exploited as a child laborer. But mm. at the same time, like I learned, I learned so much. And so like one of the little things that I was taught was like miserable people don't learn. Mm. And so like you have to keep people happy as you're teaching them. Otherwise they're going to shut down and they're not going to learn. So like the, the acronym was praise, correct praise. And he's like, even if they did garbage on their technique, find something nice to say to them. Even if it's like, wow, your gi looks nice today. Even so that like you tied your belt well or like anything to start with a compliment and then you give them the correction and then you reevaluate and then hopefully they've made improvement and you can give them a genuine compliment. Like never lie to someone about the quality of their technique, but try to keep them happy, right? So I'm never going to tell you it was a good front kick. It was a garbage front kick. Never. I'm going to tell you it was better than the last one because it is. It's not good. It's better than the last one. And like, that was the way that I was taught to teach children. Upon teaching adults, things change a little bit because adults don't necessarily like being coddled sometimes. Everyone's mm-hmm. different personality. Mm-hmm. The big thing that I, I was big on was finding a language that relates to the person. So like whatever they love. It really started with teaching karate as a kid. And then from there, it grew into, I actually ended up minoring in education at the mm-hmm. University of Florida. Oh, and wow. so that was because I, I, well, I love sharing things. Like for me... The thing that I love the most is seeing that epiphany for anybody. Like I, my favorite thing in the world, doesn't matter if it's for karate, uh, b-boying, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I tutored physics and math throughout high school and college and even then after. I love when someone thinks they can't do something and I can prove them wrong. If I can just help someone and, and, and relate something in a way that they haven't experienced before, Mm -hmm. so that they can um, go ahead and make a connection or an epiphany. That's really, really exciting to me. It seems like a superpower, you know what I mean? Developing individuals. Yeah, just just because I know so many people that I've met over the years that were amazing at one thing or another. I've met amazing gymnasts. I've met amazing b-boys. I've met amazing jiu-jitsu practitioners, karate guys. But all of that knowledge was trapped inside. Like they just did not know how to, whether it be because of their personality or their standards were just too high for like mere mortals because they kind of lost touch with where they came from. Like they've been good for so long that they can't relate to beginners anymore. It's just mm. too far away from where they are. And I always love that ability to like reach over and pass, you know, pass a piece of what I have. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that I said I like to do to connect with people is to relate it back to something that they know. Whether it be if you love video games, I can relate to video games. If you love anime, it's going to be anime. You love music, it's going to be music. Whatever it is to relate back. And that's something I learned in high school. I learned it from my high school history teacher. She was one of the best teachers I ever had. Like, I'm not a history buff. I never fell in love with history. But thanks to her, the stuff I learned in her class, I, I have never forgotten. I always remember that. Like, I took one year of American history from this woman. Her name was Miss Mohall. And I remember almost everything I learned in that class to this day, whereas like most of high school is a blur, right? Most of the things that I learned prior to being 18, other than like basic math, right? I can still add, subtract, multiply, algebra, but I remember that stuff. And it's because her big thing was like the deeper, the more that you relate something back to something else that somebody already knows or understands, the more that it will be kept in use because it has more bonds in their mind. If I just give you a a complete singleton, right? If I just give you a piece of information and you have nowhere in your mind 
to store it, then it's going to be lost yeah. unless you love it, right? Then you might love this one thing I taught you and you're going to remember it. But then if you don't have a way to connect it to everything else that you do, then it's lost. It's not helpful to you. So that led to me kind of trying to have a scaffolding because American Kempo, one of the things I loved about it is the way that it's taught. It, it is a, a karate, it's American Kempo karate, but it's taught in a way that worked for my mind. There is principles of power and principles of motion. And the idea is that every single thing that you do is either a line or a circle. And then there's principles of torque and marriage of gravity and opposing forces, all of these, these concepts of motion and biomechanics that are the foundation of the techniques which you do in that style, which is not me saying that American Kempo is the best fighting style. There are examples of American Kempo pictures that are completely useless to fight and example of them that, that are very good. But to me, it's that organization of learning that was really powerful to me and really great. And then if I apply that same paradigm to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's very useful because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, once again, has physics in it. It has the idea of torque and a lever. It has the idea of marriage of gravity. I'm on top and I'm, like, gravity is helping me. If I want to move something, if I just pull on it, it's one thing. But if I'm doing a pull and a push, that's opposing forces. And that's helpful. And then like, I remember I was at a Gary Tonin seminar and he talked about opposing forces. And I was just like, yes, this is jujitsu and this is the way that I see the world. And the big thing was like, I've, I've been really lucky to take seminars with a lot of people who have had impacts on me. So like one of the big ones that had an impact with how I teach was a seminar I took when I was in Blue Belt. It was by Roy Harris. And so Roy Harris is, I think, one of, one of the first 15 people to be a black belt in America. One of the first Americans to get his black belt. There's debate over whether or not he's one of the 30 dozen or not. I don't really care about that. Like, oh, right. you were the 12th or 13th. That's really not important to me. Right. Um, <laughs> that's up to them but um yeah. but what matters to me is he gave this analogy of jiu-jitsu and uh, he calls it the the jungle analogy of jiu-jitsu and it's that you can't understand jiu-jitsu from one perspective the same way that you can't understand a jungle form, right like if you ask someone ask you what a jungle is well you have to go see it and so if you fly a helicopter over the jungle you have one view you have the brush you see when it's dense where it's sparse where there's water etc. And then if you take a walk through the jungle, it's an entirely different perspective, right? A whole different world. You see the pass, you see some animals perhaps. And then lastly, if you go up to a tree and you stick your nose in the tree and you see all the ants and the, the microscopic world of the jungle. And so he's like, like that's jujitsu. So the aerial view is all of our concepts, the, the truths, the general truths. And so I tend to, to call those things jujitsu truths. They're things that every, all of my techniques should flow from, right? I have a, I believe this is a, a true thing about martial arts or jujitsu or fighting. Cause like the old Musashi quote, like once you know the way you will see it in all things, I kind of try to apply that. So like I try to apply the way that I move my body for b-boying to Brazilian jujitsu to everything. And so I try to have these truths. And so like I want to be able to take these truths. So for example, an example of a truth is if I am on defense, I want to make space. It's not entirely always true, but generally speaking, if I'm making space, it is good for me not to be crushed. If I'm on offense or finishing a submission, I want to remove space, right? Because I want to pin you and hold you still. This is an example of a couple. And I have a list of these general truths. And so if I learn a technique, I can actually evaluate, like, does it fit my list of truth? And if it doesn't, either that technique shouldn't work, but if the technique does work, well, then I have a faulty list and I have to go back and figure out where on my list is there a flaw. Hmm. The next level being walking through the jungle. Well, that's the idea of connecting techniques. That's the flow. That's like, I'm going to do armbar, omoplata, triangle. That's, that's, 
That's how we transition, right? Because that's what a path is, the journey through the jungle. And then lastly, your, your nose on the bark, seeing the ants and the, the super tiny organs. Well, that's, those are your fine details. That's no, don't grab here. Move your arm a centimeter and grab there instead. That's those fine, fine details of breaking mechanics and finishing mechanics to your submissions or your guard passes that make it all work. You put it all together and it makes learning much easier because I'm not going to place this armbar detail that I just learned in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. It's going to be, oh, it's an expression of this physics principle that I learned in college mm -hmm. that if I want to move something, I move distally from the lever. I want to move to the bottom of the lever and I can move my arm. If I go to the end, it's harder to move my arm. But on the flip side, if I, you're trying to escape and I'm at the end of here, it's very hard for you to remove your arm. Over here, your arm slips right out. So every single thing that I do in jiu-jitsu should flow forth from the higher level concepts. And then we have other things that I put in like ideas of motions. And then the other, I guess, trinary thing that I do is whenever I'm teaching someone to do a move, the first thing is, can they move their body in the way that matters? Then the next thing is, can they fit their body into their opponent's body? right? Like Tetris, you have to find how you fit relative to your opponent. And the last thing is, well, can you move your body and know when to do this mismotion relative to the reactions of, of your opponent? And so if you physically can't even do the motion with your body, there's no point in me trying to teach you when you should do it or how you should do it because you physically, your body can't make that motion. So if you're like, for example, if you cannot stack yourself, for example, if you can't stack at all, well, then why should I teach you any techniques that require a stack? you're never going to do them. I need to make your body able to stack. And now we can do those techniques. And so those are the kind of the, the, the whole deal. There's several aspects of what you mentioned that, that I really find fascinating. One is the power of story, right? Using your jungle analogy. And then additionally, your ability to go from a macro to a micro so, so easily. And that helps so much. And the conceptual way of teaching as well, and using the concepts of levers and that type of thing too, in terms of just yeah. like physics, we can even talk about or whatever. It's quite a dance to traverse all of those thought processes. But it's, it's, a, it's to me, that's what makes it fun, right? And so like, and that doesn't even like get into where it really gets interesting, right? So like, for me, what really gets interesting is like, all of that is how do I use my words and my actions to convey a concept to you? And that to me was what I obsessed about with teaching for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine who's got a successful school and he was just like, yeah, Charles, that's all cool. But who are you going to teach if they don't come back? I'm like what? He's like, you're an amazing teacher. Well, he didn't say that. I'm saying that. He said I was a good teacher. <laughs> but um, you're, you're a good teacher. But if your students leave and quit because they're bored or because it's too hard, like, what good is it that you're so good at teaching? Like, there might only be a few students that want to be world champions and want to sit down and dive deep with you and all this. He's like, it, what does it matter? Because for me, the only reason to ever to do anything was to try and be the best I could at it. And I was like, oh, yeah. And so, like, and like, I was trying to teach the very first thing, but the, the very, very fundamental basics of jiu-jitsu are paint-drying boring. What do most coach, school teachers? Bridge, shrimp, hip escape, right? Maybe they'll teach technical stand-up, but that's not exciting. You don't go home from and you're, you're, like, your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your kids. What are you doing today? And you show them a bridge and a shrimp. <laughs> and they're going to be like, oh, cool. Mm -hmm. That's not impressive. <laughs> it's boring. And so like, that was something that kind of sparked something in me. Like, I need to make sure that this is fun. And like, fun is, is a great tool. I taught one of the classes I had the most fun ever teaching recently in Heidelberg, Germany. And it wasn't a class that got recorded. 
but it was uh, called Why So Serious? Like using fun to increase retention, not just of, of, of concepts, but also students in jiu-jitsu. And so un- unfortunately with the, with the Globetrotters camps, the way the classes go is the classes have to be voted on. And so I get to choose five classes and I get that you voted on one and they, and so like then I only get to teach two of them. And so usually what happens that the class I want to teach always loses. Mm-hmm. Like in the, in the class that I, I, love that I don't want to, I like all my classes, but like the class that I'm trying to get over, so I have to figure out the right name. But in, in Germany, I actually joined the camp late. So they never got to vote on my classes. So I mm-hmm. got to choose the class that I got to teach. Very I got cool. to teach two classes that I always wanted to teach. And so when I taught this one, it's called uh, why so serious using fun and play to increase learning retention in jiu-jitsu. The whole idea behind it is like, I don't have to tell you all the details. If I give you goals and make a game out of it, well, then you're going to come up with your own ideas and hopefully you'll have fun. And the whole idea is the more ludicrous, absurd, or or just goofy they are, the more that it makes people chill out, right? Because what does everybody, everybody's coach always told them growing up, we're not coming up injured to like, you got to flow roll, you got to relax. But there's such a small number of people that you can actually flow roll with. Because everybody wants to flow roll until they start losing. The second someone starts losing, they can't accept in their mind that this person has beaten them with a tactical maneuver. They must be beating me because they're cheating. They must be going a little harder than I am. So I should just go a little harder. And then they feel that and they go a little harder. Next thing you know, you're just rolling, which is nothing wrong with rolling. Rolling is great. I love rolling. It's like literally it's the candy of jujitsu. It's what makes us all want to come back. But you need to be able to focus in on something. And I think the specific training and EBI overtime is a great thing. But even beyond that, you can make contrived scenarios where the winning conditions of jiu-jitsu change. Instead of me having to be tap you out, well, maybe I just need to get a certain grip. Or maybe I need to relax and like literally relax and just be heavy on somebody. Or maybe I need to get to their back. Or maybe I just need to touch their hair, which is by far my favorite game ever. Because anybody can do it. And I teach it in a way that you can take people who've never done jiu-jitsu before. And in a half an hour, they look like they're doing guard passing drills. And they don't know jiu-jitsu at all. Simply by giving them a simple goal. Don't let this person touch your hair. Because if they can touch your hair, they can punch you in the face. And that's not good. And I literally, I first did this game, maybe not the first time, but the, the last time I remember, I was in Mallorca. I was being a substitute teacher for my friend. My friend Jack was an instructor at this school. He wanted to take a vacation. And I was like, well, that's fine. I'll come over and I'll be your substitute teacher. And so I substitute taught for him in Mallorca. And there was a class where they never had a kid's program yet. And this man brought his little daughter, who I think she was probably six, seven, maybe. A little tiny speck of her. And every other person in class was a full-grown adult male, just big boys. And she was part of class. And rolling time came. And like, I'm not going to ask grown men to roll with an eight-year-old. That's, that's a waste of time for them. However, eight-year-olds got a lot of energy. And I told these guys, you can't do anything other than retain your guard, but you can't close your guard for longer than four seconds. Hmm. And this eight-year-old is going to try and touch your hair. And what did she do? What any, she tried to run in circles. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to properly move on the bottom, you can't keep up with an eight-year-old sprinting in circles trying to touch your hair. And I watched these grown men get a workout with an eight-year-old trying to touch their hair. And it was fabulous. And so I do that drill with adult and adult, but it's one of the few drills that I think where you can get a child. And unless you're super, super good at it, the child can give you a hard time, especially if I restrict things. If you're too good at it, I'm like, you can't use your hands. And so now all you have is feet. And mm-hmm. the other was, I'm like, you cannot injure this child or make them cry. If you make them cry, you lose. You can't make the eight-year-old cry. You can't hurt them, but you got to stop them touching your hair. 
And it's one of my favorite drills. And, I, and that drill was kind of the thing that sparked me that I should make more games like this. Because these are things that are fun and engaging. And you're doing a really important thing for jujitsu. You're gaining a skill, but it's not paint drying boring. Right. Right. It's, it's fun. And no one cares if they lost the ridiculous contrived game. Because no one's going to be like, ha I tapped out so-and-so. Because like, well, did you? He started out, you started out on his back. Or you started mm-hmm. out and he, he, and he couldn't use one arm. The more constraints. Actually, another place I got inspiration for my teaching from is actually an odd one. So way back... So StarCraft II is an uh, online video game. It's a um, real-time strategy game. The idea of StarCraft II is that you have armies that you build, and you build your bases, and you go and you bring your troops over, and you defeat sure. your, uh, your opponents, right? General, general war, war simulation game. But there was a guy who made videos on YouTube about the game. His name was Day9. And he had this thing where he would do a cast every single day. And I was minorly obsessed with the game for about a, a year or two after it came out. And I was watching his things, and I was like, this guy is an amazing teacher. Hmm. So what he did, he had this once a week, he called it Newbie Tuesday. And what he would do, he actually had Monday, 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 and Newbie Tuesday. And these are two little like sub shows within his show. And what he would do is he would place a constraint upon his viewers. And they had to go onto the servers and go and play StarCraft with this constraint. And on Monday, it was a ridiculous constraint, right? To try and just have fun. And on Tuesday, it was a logical constraint that would help them become a better gamer. And so I thought about this and like, it's an amazing idea. So that was part of what I did in my class is that I, I put constraints on people and I said, hey, you're going to go roll, but you don't win by tapping people out. You're going to win by insert useful or ridiculous thing X. So one of them was like, I teach this move called a taco grip, where you grab someone's foot and you hold it just like a taco. Grip. And it's actually very challenging for them to free their foot. You take your um, middle finger and your thumb and you grab around the, uh, the knuckles of your metatarsals on your foot and you bow your pinky toe and your big toe in so that their foot, as if it was a tortilla, is like a taco. So you want, I always say that you don't want to just hold their foot because then the, the filling of the taco falls out. You want to take the pinky and the big toe and mold them together so there's enough depth that you could carry some filling inside of that taco. And then you close your hand and it's very tight. There's another grip that we do on the hand that's similar called the cone grip or the ice cream cone grip where you do the same thing where you bow the pinky and the middle and the big finger in. But on this one, you can connect your thumb and hand because hands are smaller, thumb and uh, forefinger because your, your hands are smaller than feet. And the whole idea was during your roll, if you could get either of those grips and count to five out loud, that was like a submission. And then you kept going. And so we had all these little goofy things. And so it's relating it back to video game achievements, right? Because mm-hmm. like a lot of people will never become elite at anything, right? Mm-hmm. Most of us won't because that's just the way that it means to be elite. Most of us will never be the best on earth at anything because there's just billions of humans. But we still like doing things. We still mm-hmm. like having fun. So even if you're never going to be, you know, Gordon Ryan or Bushesha, you still do jiu-jitsu. And so like you want to have fun at finding these ways to have fun but also learn things because getting good at acquiring these grips and maintaining them is a valuable skill, but it's not going to win you a match, but it will be something that's fun. Also because it's annoying and your part, your opponent is frustrated because they don't know what the hell you're doing. They might be in the mentality of they're trying to win the role. They want to make you tap. And so instead of playing into their game, imagine you were the opponent always taps you out and your entire measure of success against them is being tapped out and you still are going to get tapped out. Maybe you're a white belt and maybe they're a purple belt. You're probably going to get tapped out. 
I mean, maybe you won't, but if your entire view is, did I tap this guy out? And that's just your only view of success. You're going to be miserable. You're not going to have fun. Mm -hmm. It's like, I had my little game. I said, we're like, I'm going to get tapped out a million times, but I'm never going to get tired. That was what kept me mentally able to not be miserable at the beginning of my jiu-jitsu career. But I add all these little accomplishments. Like if you can hold their ankle for 15 seconds, well, that means that you get dead leg lock entry. Good for you. Or if you can enter or like just touch their back or or touch their hair, all these things that are waypoints to control. If you can have a seatbelt as anything, now suddenly you're having fun because you're scoring points. Now they're not in the tournament, there's no points, right? Like you're not scoring tournament points, but who cares? Like you're making, you change the rules of the game and now you're getting better at things and improving yourself and rolling with that guy who beats you up isn't as bad anymore. And it goes the other way. If you're the big fish, tapping out your, your local white belt 15 times is not helping anybody unless you're just using them as, as a literal grappling dummy, in which case they probably don't appreciate that unless you've told them, hey, I'm training for worlds. I want to roll hard. Are you okay with me rolling hard on you? And if they consent, then fine. Maybe you're not a douche. But like you want to restrict yourself. So then I'll make myself be restricted. Like I can't submit unless I've had every position in the jiu-jitsu. I have to get side control, knee on belly, mount, back control. I have to get all of those. And then I can submit. Or on the other end of things, I don't beat you unless I play hangman. I have to tap out every one of your limbs. I have to tap out your neck, your left arm, right arm, and left, left foot, and right foot. And that's the only way I win. And if I don't do that, that means I lost. But once I tap out a limb, I can't do it again. So suddenly, if you can only arm bar on the right side, well, you better get better on the left side. And so these are just games that change the tone of your session so that it doesn't have to be so serious. Jiu-Jitsu is serious and it is fighting, but at the same time, like we don't always have to look at each other like we're going to murder each other. It's not right. always necessary. That just rolled right into the next question is what makes a great student? Ah, for me, what makes a great student is just somebody with an open mind, but also someone who is skeptical. I always say that the last line of defense against bullshit for any gym is the student being demonstrated on. What do you mean because I mean that if it doesn't work and the student is fake tapping, hmm. or if it doesn't work and the student is jumping in order for the throw to work, they're hurting the whole gym. Because I'm not saying that you should be a difficult uke and counter your coach's techniques. That's not the way. But what I'm saying is that if you are giving a neutral body, right, they should be able to make their technique work. Or if they're saying this is against an aggressive opponent, and you are being aggressive, it should work. Whatever context that the coach says this move should work in, if you provide them with the context they are requesting, the move should work. If it doesn't, you're not helping your gym by acting in order to help your coach save face. And it's what's really kind of the default setting. We do that. I've done that as, as an UK. I've been demonstrated on with a technique that would absolutely never in a million years work. But because I didn't want to make the coach look bad, I tapped or I fell over. And it's not good, but it's also about your gym culture. And so like, I say that, but like, I don't want to get people in trouble because if you do what I suggest at the wrong gym, you will either get injured or kicked out. Mm -hmm. I've seen it happen. I've seen a, a poor student who, in my opinion, was doing exactly what they should mm -hmm. get injured by a coach or choked unconscious by a coach unnecessarily because their partner couldn't make the technique work. And they're like, hey, coach, like, I, I think it's just not working on me. I, and then they mm -hmm. said it just like that. It's just not working on me. And the coach took it as, oh, you mean my techniques don't work? Mm -hmm. And he went and he choked the guy and the guy tapped and he didn't let go. And the guy blacked out. This is at a seminar wow. that I was at. Wow. And I was just like, 
what the hell are we doing here? Like, what is, what is this? Like, like this is like, some, like you're being disciplined because you're trying to get better. And it, it sucks. I think a good student will ask questions, mm-hmm. be skeptical, and like want to understand why. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, the why is the most important bit. Mm-hmm. Like, the how is great. We need the how. But if you don't understand why something works, you are going to be forever slave to your coach if you want to get better. I always say it like this. And maybe it's my arrogance. I don't, maybe like not everyone can be a scientist. Not everyone can, can, un, can understand why. But I think for most people, you should be able to self-heal your jiu-jitsu. You should be able to improve yourself. You should have a, a system of things that you understand such that if you hit a wall with your learning, before you go to your coach, you could have a list of suspected reasons why your technique is failing. Coach, I just can't make this work. You should be able to sit down and be like, all right, what are some hypotheses that I can come up with why this isn't working? Let me try to examine this and then move forward. And then when you come to your coach, hey, coach, I think this isn't working. Here's why I think it's not working. Can you give me your opinion? That's a very different conversation than coach mm-hmm. arm bars don't work. I, I don't expect white belts to be there, but I think as you move in your journey, being able to do that is important, but it will only happen to you if your coach forces you to critically think. Critical thinking is so, so, so important. And so I think that as a coach, you should try be trying to create fellow scientists. You shouldn't just be in a lab trying to create Frankenstein's monster because if Frankenstein's monster has all of the things that Frankenstein put into him, right? And he's a monster. He's murderous. He's amazing. He's, he's going to kill everybody because he's just so powerful. But Frankenstein can't make Frankenstein any stronger. He's stuck where he is. If he wants to get any strong, he's got to go back to the scientist and he's got to get some more of that good stuff. And I've seen this in, in lots of really good competitors with the notable exception really being the Danaher team. They're the only team that I've noticed where like just about every one of those guys is both an elite competitor and an elite teacher. I don't think I know of any other team where it's that homogenous. There's lots of teams with great teachers, right? 10th Planet has some great teachers. Atos has some great teachers. Like every team has, has a couple of people or more that are phenomenal instructors. But it's very rare that you see that just about every person is both. Most mm-hmm. of the time, you kind of got to choose. You have your amazing coach who just hasn't had competition success. Or you have your amazing competitor and their seminar is painful to go to because you get this feeling that they don't even know why they're so good. And their response is like, just do like me. And they just demonstrate the move and like, just do this. Like how many seminars have you been to where the guy does something and he's like, just do this, Mm -hmm. put this there. And it's just like, I mean, maybe I can get it. Like I've been training for 15 years and I can analyze your motion with my eyes, but like a lot of this room is going to struggle with that teaching Mm -hmm. style. Which to me, I think being a great student is being able to learn. Like I think in the beginning, it's being skeptical. And I think being able to learn from any kind of coach. I think like I always try to be the type of student who could learn from the worst possible teacher. So like even if you're a horrible teacher, Mm -hmm. I can still glean something from what you're doing by examining your motion or rolling with you or seeing something. And like, so if you have a coach who wants you to do a thousand reps of it, not my favorite kind of coach, but there's something to learn from that kind of coach. Or you have a coach who just wants you to roll hard. Well, you can still learn some of that kind of coach or a coach that wants you to insert teaching method here. Some coaches like the chain method where they teach you a chain of eight moves together. Other coaches prefer what I call the nexus method where they teach you a, a kind of a turning point. And if the guy goes left, you do this. He goes right, you do that. He postures, you do this. He goes down, you do that. And so mm-hmm. it's a nexus. It's a decision mm-hmm. tree. It's another mm-hmm. way of teaching. It's a great way of teaching. Then you have the coaches that are virtually all theory and like no application. Mm-hmm. And then you, and so like, there's all these different styles of teaching. If I can absorb from all of them, that mm-hmm. to me makes me a super student. And that's going to allow me to grow. Because when I go to Globetrotters camps, for example, 
there's so many different styles of instructors. Some instructors are super traditional. Some instructors are super like avant-garde, like, well, why are we ever do this? They very much question the orthodoxy. Some instructors are going to teach you the most technical 18-part technique where if you miss one move, you've missed it all. So like these amazing fine details, but Mm. really heavy and dense and hard if you're looking for a general concept. They're all so different. And if I'm a great student, I should teach myself to glean from all of them because some of the best knowledge on earth might live inside of someone who doesn't know how to teach. And I want that knowledge. And so if I'm just like, "Hmm, he can't teach as well as me, I'm not going to learn from him. Well, now I'm at a loss. Now there's some good sauce over there that I don't have. So I think that would be what it is. Like teaching yours, like not everyone's going to be able to do that. But I think that to me is what makes like an elite level student. Just being a good student, just pay attention, ask questions, let go of this, this thing that students have where like, if I ask a question, coach is going to think I suck. I've seen it so many times. Like almost every seminar I've ever been to, the coach Mm -hmm. or or instructor, whether it be me or somebody else asks, does anybody have any questions? Crickets. And then you look over and you see two people, yo, did you get that? No, I didn't get that. I didn't get it. I'm locked. But no one wants to hold things up. And I think hold things up, like be that squeaky wheel. I think that's kind of like the, the beginning step is like being honest with yourself and your coach about when you're confused. Because like admitting that you don't know is step one. If you can't admit that what you don't know, well, then you're going to stay ignorant. It seems like it's also helpful and you get a point in your journey where you realize that you need to take ownership of your learning as well, right? Yeah. In, in addition to your own coach, you do have to look outside sources, whether it be instructionals, YouTube, Instagram, whatever. Right. It may. As much as people joke about that kind of thing, there are real professionals actually offering some really sound advice on those various platforms as well. I completely agree. I think that especially in 2021, there's just great stuff out there. Like when I started jujitsu, some of the stuff on YouTube was pretty questionable. Yeah, <laughs> was absolutely. Pretty, pretty, pretty suspect. A lot of it just yes. looks cool. Like, I don't know if you remember, and this is not a down on these guys because they were like all of us just trying to figure it out back then. Do you remember Submissions 101? Yes. So, <laughs> Submissions 101 were a group of guys who just trained and they had fun and they would just post a video of sometimes the most ridiculous techniques. Yeah. Like I remember one of the videos I watched when I was a white belt was Flying Omoplata. The flying omoplata that they showed was the coolest looking move I've ever seen. Right. And a great way to break your neck if you're white belt. Like it was just so dangerous looking. <laughs> yeah. But it was so much fun. And they, they showed the flying armbar that Jeff Lover did to, I think it was, uh, they did a demo, Jeff Lover, and I think it was Huron or yeah. um, Henry Gracie way back in the day. And he climbs up to the top of this fully standing Huron and armbars him with his arm over his head. It looks so cool. You're not mm-hmm. pulling that off in a tournament. <laughs> but yeah. like, and so like, I think what happens is once you get to the point where I think it goes back to the same thing I said, like having that sky view, having principles of jujitsu that allow you to filter things. Well, then now Instagram and YouTube are great because you can watch whatever these guys are watching, but you have an idea of like what makes good jujitsu. And so like, you can take this technique and like, okay, they're doing this Y and Z. Why? Why are they doing that? Like, what is putting their foot over here instead of there to get them? And now on the flip of the other side, I'm defending this. What's the other side? Like, what are the vulnerabilities? What do I lose? Because very rarely is a variation just better. There's usually a trade-off. Like, I'm a very big proponent of shallow saddle. Shallow saddle being, instead of uh, putting your insides and kaku and triangling your feet, because I don't have very dexterous hips or very flexible hips, I put my foot behind my own leg. And I've been through a full journey with this. I started off doing shallow saddle, switched to inside Senkaku, and I'm back at shallow saddle again. Thanks to, I got to always give him credit, Marvin Castillo. I went to a seminar and he was teaching a shallow saddle, shallow saddle. And I was like, yeah. I used to do shallow saddle, but everybody told me I had to do a triangle. 
And like, I went back and I was like, I'm doing a shallow saddle again. What you lose in shallow saddle is you don't have a fully locked triangle. So you don't have as much of a bite on the leg. So there's a little bit more of a chance of them being able to escape. But what you gain is mobility, which is like, I can disengage this position whenever I want. So I can get up and start passing. I can do other things. And that to me is worth the loss of control because I like being able to transition very frequently. Stylistically, I like movement and I like being able to change positions fluidly. Locking myself down in a triangle when it's one, it's uncomfortable for my legs because I am not a yogi. I'm working on it. I want to get my hips open up. I'm like, this is embarrassing. I've been doing martial arts my whole life and I've got inflexible hips. I'm going to take this seriously. Like I'm actually finally making progress on my hip flexibility this time Mm. recently, but I'm not there. And I like the idea of being able to disengage, of being able to disengage and re-engage and constantly keep my opponent in dilemmas, keep my opponent having to choose between two bad choices. And so that's my decision. But I understand that if I have a student who's got those hips and has got a really tight bite, the inside sankaku might be better for them. It might be a better position for them than shallow saddle. I don't need to make them me, but I think that as long as there's a why, and that why might just be, it's fun. Like I teach flying submissions to white belts. I teach flying arm bars and flying loop chokes to white belts and no one gets hurt because we don't pretend like it's the boogeyman. We mm-hmm. teach you how to do it safely. I think that's the truth of almost anything in jiu-jitsu that is seen as dangerous or prohibitive. It's just because you don't understand. It's ignorance, right? Like if you don't understand a Kimura and you get out the wrong way, you break your shoulder. If you don't understand a heel you, in the wrong way, you break your knee. If you don't understand... When it's appropriate to jump and when it's not appropriate to jump, you're going to jump guard and break your partner's knee. So I think that it's just knowledge is power. You have to educate yourself to keep yourself safe. Like if the only thing keeping you safe in jiu-jitsu is the rules, there's a problem with your jiu-jitsu. Like if the only reason why this person can't injure you is because it's illegal. And I mind you, obviously like punches and kicks change the game. But I I would still even bring that in. Like if you don't know how to make your jiu-jitsu work, if someone's trying to punch and kick you, well, then that's not really ideal. Now, does it mean that you shouldn't have anything in your jiu-jitsu game that only works for a rule set? No, of course. We're all trying to win this game. I get it. Like making something for a rule set is fine. But if if you don't have any version of jiu-jitsu that works, that only works because of these rules, like that's kind of scary, right? Like that's kind of like why the 50-50 meta of gi jiu-jitsu got so weird. Because without heel hooks... You can sit in 50-50 forever. Hmm. You can just sit there forever. It's, in, it's such a stagnant position if you can't attack that inside heel look. But once you add that thing back in there, game's very different. That is interesting. I was talking to Dave Kama before one of the Dirty Dozen, and he's like, you know, it's almost like the art is bifurcating in two different sort of arts in a way. One is sort of sport jujitsu, and the other one being, a, from his perspective, a self, self-defense yeah. sort of uh, mindset. So that's a fascinating point. I completely agree, but I don't think that you have to. I think that you can play sport jiu-jitsu and do buggy chokes and be ridiculous and have fun, but also understand that like this art can be used to defend yourself. Because I, I came from striking martial arts and I came from the idea of this being something that is useful in a fight, I don't get mad at spazzy white belts. They're a gift. Like The, the out-of-control muscular white belt is a gift, but he should not be paired with other white belts. He is a gift to your blue belts and purple belts and brown belts because he's a reminder that, oh, apparently that place you were in allowed you to get elbowed in the face. And he wasn't even trying to. Imagine if someone meant to. So you should be able to change your jiu-jitsu such that that spazzy white belt can't hurt you. And they're like, but I want to be It's like, no, the spazzy white belt doesn't get your kindness until they learn to show out. I'm not saying to hurt them, but if they get to spend every match in bottom side control being pinned and controlled, 
so be it until they learn how to relax in a way that their partners can trust them hmm. to not maim them. But you should be able to stop this person from maiming because that's the whole point of this art that we're doing is to get inside of the range of striking weapons so that they're less effective. Hmm. So if I can't do that, well, then that's a problem. It's not to say that I should, that every technique needs to go do that, but I should have at least a piece of my jujitsu that can control someone who's trying to harm me. And if I can do that, then someone who's accidentally harming me should be easy because they're not even trying to hurt me. As long as I stay, if you stay close enough to somebody, unless they're just like prohibitively big, like size is not the only thing, but it does matter. Like I have moves that I do. And like I was rolling with a guy in Netherlands it who's matters. like 6'6". Six, six. Yeah. And like the fact that even with my frame, he can wrap his entire arm around my body and connect them. Well, suddenly my frame doesn't matter as much if the length of his arms are just so, so long. Well, this guy, I need to frame with my hand. I can't frame with my arm. So, like, or even like if someone is so big, like I'm rolling with someone who's 300 plus pounds and I'm trying to leg triangle. Them. Well, if my legs don't reach, I can't leg triangle. Like this, this is a variable that matters. And so like, I'm not trying to say that it's the only variable. Because if it was the only variable, then there'd be no point in doing this. The analogy that I like to give to people is that jujitsu is a it's a multiplier. It multiplies your strength, it multiplies your dexterity, it makes you better than your base stats. But say that my jujitsu is at a, at a level that it's times two. And so my base stat of strength in this particular area, we're just gonna call it a 10 for easy numbers, right? And my jujitsu makes it a 20. But this guy's base stat is 21. Well, he's still going to be able to be stronger than me. Like, I think we've all had that moment with the giant guy where we have an arm bar and they curl us. And we're like, oh, I'm not arm barring this guy unless I make him weaker, which brings me into a whole different set of things that I like talking about, which is like jiu-jitsu makes us stronger. But there's a whole other part of jiu-jitsu about making our opponent weaker. If I misalign his spine, he's not as strong as he was. If I twist his back, if I put him in a situation where he's not comfortable. He can't express that power as much as he usually could. So if my jiu-jitsu takes me to a 20 and he's a 21, I got to find a way to make him a 19, mm -hmm. however I have to. And that's another part of the skill. Charles, can you tell me a time that you wanted to quit and why? That I wanted to quit. Mm, that's interesting. The one that pops into my head immediately was my blue belt plateau. And it's stereotypical, right? Because blue belt's the belt everyone says that everyone quits. Because I, at blue belt, had never in my whole jiu-jitsu career ever hit an armbar. I could, I'd never armbar anybody. My entire jiu-jitsu game at that point was leaning heavily on my dexterity and, and ability to always stand up from my uh, breakdancing background. And no matter who you were, I would just, I would frame and I would never use my guard. I would frame and try to get back to my feet. I would get to a front head trap and I would try and Darcy. Um, that was like pretty much my whole game at Blue Belt. Along with, I had a few judo pins like Keiza Katami, Americana is like basic, basic stuff. I could perform the other moves if you asked me to demonstrate, but in a role I couldn't. And I would always go every role as hard as I could. And I realized that there were people ahead of me, right? Purple belt. And I think there was one brown belt there who would still beat me. And there were people behind me who I would still beat but I wasn't making any progress. Like the, the, it was very clear, like the gym pecking order kind of panned out. These are the people I tap. These are the people who tap me. And I wasn't making any progress, but I knew at this point in time, because I was obsessed. I was training more than anybody. I was doing two days, five days a week. And then I was doing, sometimes I would travel out of town on Saturdays to go train outside of town in Jacksonville or Orlando or, or Tampa or Tallahassee or anywhere that would have me. So I was, I was full on like peak jiu-jitsu obsession. It didn't matter. I was still losing the same people and winning the same people. And then one of the guys surpassed me. 
somebody who I usually tapped, tapped me out. And he was also a blue, I don't actually, I don't remember if he was a blue belt or I think he was also a blue belt, but he was smaller than me on top of it. And I was just like, what am I doing? Like, I'm not, I'm not getting better. Maybe this is as good as I get. And it really bothered. And he actually had an entirely different style. Than me. He had a style that was very, very variable. Like he was kind of, he had a very big game, right? I told you my whole game at this point in time was pretty much like judo, Keiza Katami submissions, and then front head trap darts. And on top of it, I think recently our coach had taught the team how to defend Darces. Because previously, like I was like one of the few people who knew how to do Darces. And so it was like being Prometheus. And now the, now everyone has fire. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so um, I was really like down. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to play guard. I'm not going to play my game. I'm going to play guard. And I started losing even more. But even though I was losing, it was fun because the roles weren't all the same. Because remember, like if you have a very narrow game, every role is the same, right? You because you only have one strategy. And so that for now I'm playing guard. And I was trying to play not just regular close guard, I was trying to play butterfly guard. And I think our coach wanted us to play X guard, and I hated X guard. Ironically, now like I love X guard, but like back then I hated X guard. I didn't like any of it, but it was interesting because I was losing differently every round. I was getting killed by people who used to beat me, and they were really happy because like I always went as hard as I could every time. And also I wasn't getting credit for winning. So every time I won. It was the old adage, right? Oh, you're just strong. And I got, oh, it's just because of your breakdancing bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm like, I get, I'm getting no love for my victories. Like, what's the point? And when I started playing guard and so just, just regular bottom, I was like, this is actually fun. Mm-hmm. This is fun again. Like, because I'm seeing that like my actions and changes in actions have a, have an impact. Like, like losing more actually is what stopped me from quitting because that stalemate of, of everything being completely predictable, right? That like these guys are going to beat me and these guys I'm going to beat day in and day out to a day was killing me. But that like opened up a whole new world. And then like from there, like the leg locks came in. Like when I, got, I started getting bored, like the leg lock thing like really exploded for me. Like where, because this is a whole new world. Because in the beginning, like we just saw leg locks was just a move. Like I had a guy that I used to train with who would let you mount him just outside heel that was his entire game. So I could always beat him, but he let me mount him. And then every time I was outside, he looked and I, I didn't know how to defend it. I said attack. So I, I had mm. always had bad knees. I had torn my knees breakdancing. I was actually part of how I got the jiu-jitsu was I had two torn meniscuses. And I was like, oh, a sport I can do for my butt. This is great. <laughs> so like, that was what got me back in the jiu-jitsu after I had stopped. And um, I, I didn't really stop. Like I just, I got busy with life, you know, like I was in college. It was, that was the boon. And like, I got really interested in it again. And then like, whenever I got bored, I just pick something I'm horrible at and like make myself do it. And it's far more interesting to lose differently than to win the same way over and over again. At least that, that was what did it for me. And then after that, like at Purple Belt, I had another plateau and I was like, all right, I'm not allowed to use any of my physicality. I have to pretend that I'm weak. If I have to use any effort, I can't do the move. And like, that helped me look through my Pearl Belt plateau. And then since then, like, it's just constantly trying to find, like, consciously, like, try to find blind spots. Like, right now, my current blind spot that I realize is, like, I've, like, adopted the idea of inside control. And so most of my jiu-jitsu comes from inside control. Like, the idea of being the one on the inside for legs, arms, etc. Mm-hmm. And I like, I need to learn outside control. Because at Blue Belt, everyone was doing Barambolo. And I hated Barambolo because everyone was doing it. I didn't want to follow the, 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 the trend. But like, I shouldn't, I'm a black belt. I should know how to barambolo. No, I think I've hit a barambolo on someone like probably three or four times in my whole jiu-jitsu career. Like, I should know this. Like, it's a, it's a popular move. And so like, 
learning how to play with outside control, like one of my current projects, even though like it's been something that I've ran from for my whole jiu-jitsu career because I didn't want to follow the trend. So like I, I, my best example is that like it became repetitive and boring and it seemed like my hard work wasn't paying off is why. So if I was going to distill down why I almost quit. And then like losing more is what kind of saved me. Like letting my, like going, because that's the freedom of being a white belt. Mm-hmm. Like the freedom of being a white belt is that no one expects anything. You can do anything, anything. And they're like, ah, white belts. But there's no smear on your name. You don't lose any reputation because you're already at the bottom. So you can do whatever you want. It's just such a freedom in that. And like, and like as a black belt, like I'm expected to like do well against certain people. Oh, your black belt got tapped out by a blue belt. Yeah, that happened. Very shortly after I got my black belt, I got choked unconscious by a blue belt visiting at a visit when I was visiting a gym mm. because I thought that it was going to be easy. I took the kid lightly, not realizing that the kid like was like a strong wrestler. And like, even though he was doing the choke wrong, it didn't matter. He could mm-hmm. goon the choke and I was still going to black out. And by sure. the time I realized I was in trouble, I was unconscious. And I was waking up and I was like, well, this is embarrassing. This is really embarrassing. I got to make sure that I don't, don't get mauled anymore at this gym. But like, there's no Superman pill. Like, no matter how long you've been training, jiu-jitsu still works. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the whole thing that like, we don't realize. And I think that like, you start getting this air of invincibility because you're a black belt, you've been doing this. Like, if being a black belt protected you from jiu-jitsu, then that means jiu-jitsu wasn't very good. Right. Like, jiu-jitsu works on anybody. That's the whole point. Like, you can position yourself so it's harder to be submitted. But if straight up just me existing and being a black belt meant that no jiu-jitsu it would ever work on me again, then like, jiu-jitsu would be kind of crappy. Because then it would just mean that like, anybody could just work hard. And then all the black belt matches would be boring. Right, they just be staring at each other, which in a way they kind of are in some divisions. They're just nullifying anti-jujitsu versus anti-jujitsu. But like, that's what I love about jujitsu is like I can get caught if I properly teach my student and let them put something on me. They should be able to tap me out. They should be doing it right. If I if there's if I can let my students do anything and they'll never tap me out, I'm failing them. I'm just failing them. Like if I if I can give them a dead to right submission and I can still always get out 100 of the time, I failed them. I'm a crap teacher. Charles, can you give me your thoughts on how do you see the future of jujitsu going? I think it's going to be interesting. I think that the art is going to splinter. I don't think it's just going to splinter in two, though. I think it's going to go a lot of directions. I think that we're going to, because we have a lot of forces acting on us at the same time, right? We have the, the differing rule sets between the IBJJF rule set and the submission only rule set that's happening. We have just gi versus no gi that's happening. But I think even bigger than a lot of those, we have hobbyist jiu-jitsu versus competition jiu-jitsu. And the thing about jiu-jitsu is it's so much fun. A lot of people are just happy with that. Mm -hmm. They're happy with just having fun and rolling with their friends. And they have no desire to be the best. And that's okay. As long as they're they're learning jiu-jitsu, it's still great. But where I think the the real weird thing is going to start happening is like, Jiu-jitsu is also very profitable. And because it's very profitable, there's going to be the same thing that happened to karate, which is you're going to have people who are going to reduce what jiu-jitsu is in order to make money. And you already have it. You already have gyms where like the standard is showing up. You show up and you take the test and you're going to get promoted. But I don't necessarily think that like that's something you can control. Like I love the quality assurance that jiu-jitsu has of the role. That's the elegant thing about jiu-jitsu is that in any other fighting art, if we want to prove that you know something and we spar, well, one of us might get injured. There's a risk, right? If I show up at a gym for, say, kickboxing and the coach is an older guy, he's like pushing 60. I don't think it's realistic for me to expect him 
to have a like hard spar with me to prove that he's worthy of teaching me. Sure. It's silly. It's really silly. But in jujitsu, because of the fact that like we stop short of submission, I think it's pretty reasonable that unless your coach is like severely injured, even if they're older, that you can roll with your coach. Mm-hmm. And provided that you're not like being a douche, there shouldn't be any risk of injury, right? Like you should be able, like almost every gym I've been to, the owner of the gym wants to roll with me as a visiting black belt. And like, we should be able to roll without anybody getting hurt. Mm -hmm. And there should be a certain level of understanding that you can feel. You can feel it when you roll with someone. Like, I I don't know if it's it's everybody, but I've got a sense that the second that I touch somebody, I know whether like I'm in danger or not. The second that we tie up, I'm like, oh no, or this guy's not going to be a threat. Now, mind you, some people have like mastered the art of playing possum and like they'll try to present themselves as unthreatening so that mm. I lower my guard and they can submit me. Like that's, mm. that's a legitimate style, like playing sure. possum or rope a dope or whatever you want. That's legitimate. But right. generally speaking, you can feel someone's skill by rolling. And that's kind of the cool thing that gives us some more quality control in jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Not to mention if you go back to the original like dojo storming culture, that kept things very, uh, very under control for a while. But we're in 2021. It's not really socially appropriate for you to bring your students to a gym and challenge someone to a duel. Like that's not the world we live in anymore. So there's going to be gyms that pop up that are going to reduce the standards. And that's going to make it to the point where like, it's almost, I don't think we're going to get to the levels of Taekwondo. Cause like, for example, Taekwondo can be an effective martial art. There are people with Taekwondo backgrounds or karate backgrounds that make it to the UFC for karate, Wonder Boy Thompson being the greatest example, or Lito Machida. Mm-hmm. But you also, if you go to any strip mall, you can go to a karate or Taekwondo school and find what's effectively a daycare center. And I think that Jiu-Jitsu will have that version of it. I think that we will have that as well. And I don't think it's really something we can stop. I think it's going to happen. I think that one of the big things about Jiu-Jitsu that makes it unique is that it's primarily target, targeted at adults. Uh, there are kids' Jiu-Jitsu classes, but it's one of the few martial arts that are going these days that it's mainly adults that join. Most karate schools are mainly kids' programs, and the adult mm-hmm. program is supplementary. Same with Taekwondo. And that's the cool thing about Jiu-Jitsu, and I think that that's going to kind of hedge it a little bit. I think that on the higher end, right, the competition end, I think it's going to be more of what we've been seeing, more asking why, more systemization of jiu-jitsu. I think that the defensive side of jiu-jitsu is getting heavily explored thanks to EBI overtime. I think made defensive systems get heavily studied because everyone got good at defending those two positions back in our, in Spiderweb. I think that we're going to see this next generation of kids is just going to be terrified because I yeah. think there's just so many of them. Just the quantity of humans involved in jiu-jitsu is going to raise the art. But then yeah. also like, most of us in jiu-jitsu started as adults. And so we kind of missed our, our prime physicality. We used mm-hmm. our prime physicality to acquire jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. But by the time we were intellectually worth anything, our bodies were already on the, on the downside. Right. And so like, there are definitely cases where like, people are, have started younger, like a lot of the Brazilians. But like, now we have America and Europe and yeah. even Asia that are having people start jiu-jitsu as kids. There's yeah. a different level of kind of automatic that happens when you do something as a kid. I know this because like, I don't keep up with my karate training. But when I go and spar with karate guys, like I can still throw kicks just like I could because I did it for 15 years from age sure. three to age 18. So like my, my body still remembers how to do it almost automatically. It didn't go away. And I think that that, that level of almost automatic ability is going to change the game. Plus the instruction is so much better. Like you can't get away with like hiding your students in the dark. It used to be that like the only way you could learn jiu-jitsu would be to like find some, some like weird VHS tape or if you spoke mm-hmm. Portuguese... You could get it on, on YouTube because there was Portuguese YouTube mm-hmm. or you could find a DVD and they were expensive and 
It might be crappy, but like now like BJ Fanatics has made it just so easy. And on right. top of it, you have like the new platforms that are, are making it so easy to learn from anybody. Now, mind you, the instructional version of things isn't always the best. I think that like not everybody right. can learn from an instructional. I would argue YouTube also. I mean, there's I mean oh, free yeah. a ton of free content from yes. really outstanding black belts. For sure. But I think that not everyone learns in that medium. Not every not everybody learns from videos. So like, like even if you can't, right? Your coach can't. Somebody you know can't. Like I watched some of the Danaher videos and like I had a hard time with my attention. But I have a friend and he learns that way. And so like yeah. I can take a class from him on the Danaher stuff. Right. And it's it's one to remove, but like I'm getting the good stuff because it's right. digested by him. There was a sort of discussion on Reddit with some, I believe it was Guy Mendez or someone talking about Colabate, who's a 16-year-old blue belt. He's yeah. destroying black belts. And oh, to yeah. even call him a, a blue belt, I think, is, a, you know, kind of a bit of Silly. a... Guy was saying this is sort of like for people to call him a sandbagger because people were calling him a sandbagger or referring to him that way, which I, I don't support. It almost seems to me like we're at this point where there needs to be like a professional level and sort of a farm league or something like that. I would completely agree. But it's because that whole you can't be anything beyond the blue belt until you're 16. That was yeah. one of the things that was jujitsu desperately does not want to be type one, right? We don't yeah. want to be that joke where there's a six year old with a fifth degree black belt and sure. it's a joke, right? Because a six year old is not dangerous to anybody or a six year old. Right. But I think that that bifurcation is important, or we could just let the kid compete at higher belt levels and have it no matter. I think it only really, like, he's not a blue belt. Right? How long has he been trained? Ten years or something? Right? Like he's right. not a blue belt, but he is still a kid. Right. And so, and because our sport is still young with kids, there's not really many other kids on earth for him to compete against. Yeah. It's the same thing with, with the Rotulo brothers, right? Like yeah. And so, like they're kind of the victim of their own success. They were so dedicated and trained so hard in something that no one else was doing that was their age. That mm -hmm. until they become adults, it doesn't really make sense. But there's that problem of the whole. It made these almost be like a time and grade waiver if you have 10 years of kids or like it's a weird thing like a lot of the things in jiu-jitsu are meant to stop us from having a lot of people that are in positions of high rank without right. high skill but in the case of these kids what are you gonna do i mean you even have it with some of the other kids like all these kids that have trained jiu-jitsu for 10 plus years before they're an adult they're gonna be a problem and mm -hmm. I think that the, the split, but like it also, they're going to ruin the fun of the other kids for sure. Because these other kids are like, la, 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 just there as you fun. Go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you're a kid that, that like, plays football, basketball, lacrosse, and you do jujitsu yeah. on the side and you're 16 and, and you run like into coal at a competition. Yeah. <laughs> you're done. It's horrible. But then the other side, like he is also still a 16 year old kid. And the mindset of a 16 year old, putting him in there with all the adults, I think is also dangerous because the, no adult wants to get tapped out by a 16 year old. But at the same time, like you don't want to be the monster who broke a 16 year old's arm because his 16 year old thinks he's Superman doesn't want to tap. So like the mindset of being 16, like you're invincible. You don't believe in anything. And so they're not going to tap. And like, I don't think it's fair to break these athletes, right? He is amazing, but he's still 16 and he doesn't have the muscular development and the intellectual development of an adult to save his own body. And so like right. on one hand, he might go in there. Like, like Nikki Ryan did and just crush everybody and do great. And then like, obviously hit, 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 a, hit a wall. Like Nikki Ryan didn't win ADCC, but he did very well considering how young he is, you know, like, and now you see him, he's come back. He's a tank now, right? Like Nikki Ryan came back and put on all the muscle because he got tired of being bullied and being little. And so like, I don't think, cause you're going to have some of these kids and it's going to be like 
they're going to get broken. Like, that's the only fear that I have with letting them compete against adults. But if you don't, then they're going to atrophy because they can't compete really against anybody who's going to challenge them either. So it's a really weird kind of catch-22. But if you leave them down, then you have the problem also of them just ruin it, kind of ruining the sport for everybody else, for lack of a better word, like, because no one else is going to have fun if they're there. But so it's, it's a really weird problem that sadly, I don't have the answer. I mean, I think that once time happens, like there's going to be more of them, right? There'll be enough of them to have their own show. That there will be enough kids, but right now I don't know if that happens for four or five years. Because there's that, that other kid, I think he's from Texas, and he uh, he he won grappling industries against a bunch of adult black belts, and it sucks because like it's great for the kids, but I don't know. I don't know. I wish I had an eloquent answer for that. I I think it's a great problem that hopefully someone else solves. I, I don't. Yeah, have a it's, good it's an it's an interesting discussion that I like having with all you high level guys now and, and women, I should say, people, yeah. because it, it's just such a fascinating topic that I think uh, no one's really. We haven't gotten to the bottom two yet, obviously. I mean, time. I think it's just going to be time. I think that it's the same way how, like, if you look back at how competitive women's jiu-jitsu was 15 years ago, and you look at it now, like, women's jiu-jitsu can sustain their own event. Like, Medusa was an awesome show. There's enough women at a high enough skill that now Mm -hmm. women's jiu-jitsu is is exciting. But if you go back and look at the women's division ADCC 15 years ago, pretty big difference it was there wasn't that many people and mm-hmm. the skill level wasn't anywhere near what it is now but again that's good to a whole i think that i'm a firm believer that like there are some blue and pearl belts of today that would beat black belts of 10 years ago 15 years right. ago like the skill level in jiu-jitsu has just exploded it's incredible yeah and I, yeah i should say too like you see these kids like 14 year old helena cravar i mean they're gonna have the same problem with these young yep. young women these young ladies coming up it's uh, crazy i think they have even worse problem like yeah, because there's there's even less competitors if you slip like but they have the, the first choice of they're going to compete against the little boys mm-hmm. and that's like their, their first way that it gives them at least a little hedge on time mm-hmm. because before puberty it's it's pretty okay I think that like before puberty happens, like that, that, that happens very frequently that these kids compete against kids. It's mm-hmm. only like once like the size difference gets so much like, cause you're at the average size, like the, the things get a little weird, but even then, like I've seen adult matches that were intergender where women have taken them down. Mm-hmm. Like one of my first tournaments I went to was in Miami. And I think I was either a white belt or a blue belt. And there was no one in the women's division. And mm-hmm. this female purple belt took on this, like, it was a nogi that took on this, like, random guy who was like, ha, ha, ha. And she triangled the crap out of him. Mm-hmm. And the whole tournament exploded, like, because she was just better than he was. Sure. But sure. I think that it gets a little hairy when you get to the highest level. Like, I think you remember that that incident with, um, it was Tex Johnson versus one of the kids that was underage. And, like, mm-hmm. Tex got amped up. I think he, like, he hit the kid or something. And everyone's like, Tex hitting yeah. a kid. It's just like, you shouldn't hit anybody. Mm-hmm. But, like, at the same time, like, that's kind of some of the hazards that come with the adult division is that, like, we're in an yeah. adult competition for thousands of dollars. Things can that can happen. Bumps and bruises. Or even if you look back at like Tokino competing at ACC, smacking everyone in the head. These weird things that aren't quite enough to get disqualified happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they're they need to be part of the art, but they they currently are. Right? They're sure. there. Like you, you're gonna get clubbed in the head. You're gonna yeah. get headbutted. You're gonna have someone headbutt you in the sternum and feel like your ribs are broken. Like all of these violent things that happen in that that gray area of the rules. Mm-hmm. I think that they're, they're kind of part of the reason also that I kind of chill with the kids, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that it's really cool how good everyone's getting. Like the women's division is, is fire. The kids division is, is amazing. Like the skill level, everybody is exploding. So Charles, it was so great talking to you. Where can the listeners get more information about you? 
All right, so the easiest way is going to be, uh, my name is Charles Harriet. Harriet is spelled H-A-R-R-I-O-T-T. So my website is charlesharriet.com. I have an active Instagram account, which is at Charles Harriet. I have an active YouTube channel, which is at Charles Harriet. And just because my name is spelled, I, like, I own all my social real estate. So same thing on Facebook, Charles Harriet. It's all spelled the same way. Um, find me on If you want to have me over for a, a seminar or private lesson or anything, just message me. I'm always down. I've done this thing that I'm doing now that I love. I just did in Arizona, which is a substitute teacher program. So if you have a gym and you want to take a vacation or you have shoulder surgery, I'll gladly come and teach at your gym for a week, two weeks, a month. And I've done it a few times in Tel Aviv, Israel. And I just did it in Albuquerque, Arizona at Binder Jiu-Jitsu and in Israel at um, Octopus Jiu-Jitsu. And I absolutely love it because I get a chance to be with students for longer and really try and make an impact. And so if you're interested in that, message me or you want a seminar or just if you want to talk Jiu-Jitsu, I, I respond to messages as long as you're not asking me for like sweaty socks or anything weird. <laughs> I have a DVD on BJ Fanatics like Locks yes. 101 and I will be having a new DVD of the different acts coming soon oh, um, wow. in Virgins 101 as soon as I edit it and send it to them so now I've just said that in public so now I have to finish editing it so we'll have links to all that so thank you everyone for That's watching great. listening out there I'm Adolfo Ferranda Charles thank you so much great thank you it was my pleasure you're a pleasure to talk to all right guys see you next time <laughs>